Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. David Breakspear spent four decades trapped in the revolving doors of crisis and crime, along with everything that entailed. In 2017, he was released from his ninth and final custodial sentence. And since then, he's been using his lived experience to advocate for reform. Hi, David. Nice to meet you. Thank you, David. And good afternoon. Good to see you again, David. Thanks for joining us. So, David, you work for an organisation called Revolving Doors. Could you tell us a bit about the work of Revolving Doors and what your role is in the organisation? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, fine. Uh, I, um, I'm a volunteer there, paid volunteer. Um, Revolving Doors have been going since 1993. Um, so it's our 30th, this month, funny enough, it's our 30th anniversary. So great time in speaking to me um and really they were they were kind of more about research so they were looking into the reasons why people get caught up in revolving doors of crisis and crime and they started to understand the importance of lived experience and the involvement of people with lived experience and in 2000 i hope i get these dates right in 2008 um they set up their first lived experience forum and since then it's been the norm if you like. Um, my role there is I'm a member of one of, uh, sorry, I'm a member of the lived experience team and I'm also a peer mentor there on part of the health and justice side that we do with the NHS. Um, we speak to um, companies such as MIJ, probation, um, NHS health and justice. Um, I suppose, well, we, we speak uh, I suppose the best way to explain it is that revolving doors provide a platform for people with lived experience to speak truth to power. Um, we've been involved in several projects, uh, or I've been involved in several projects since I've been part of revolving doors. Um, they've released with the MOJ, neurodiversity in the criminal justice system with an MOJ. We helped with the three year reducing reoffending plans with probation. But I think. W- one of my my kind of i don't want to say proudest but um something i really enjoyed doing with them is um on a program called reconnect which i know you're going to mention so i won't say too much about that but being in a position to be able to if you like take and take ownership of my experience and to use it to influence change um it, it's about turning all of those negatives into a positive really like the way you summed that up actually David in terms of creating something that's that's purposeful and and has meaning out of out of the experiences that you have so that they're not they're not kind of like just a waste of 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 life in somehow how how did you come to get involved with them was there did they were they looking for for people to join them or did someone connect you with them uh, yeah, yeah, it's quite a story, actually. Well, not quite a story. It's not a short story. But um, a friend of mine, Jermaine Davis, um, he is was, sorry, and I'll explain why in a minute, but he was um, 
a campaigner for changes to the criminal justice system. And me and Jarmaine met on, on social media. Uh, and then he mentioned revolving doors to me. He said, have you ever heard of revolving doors? Um, and so I got in contact with revolving doors. I spoke to Andy Williams, the involvement manager. Uh, and I loved what it was that we were discussing. I love what they were about. I love what they do. Obviously, Jarmaine already spoke to me. Uh, and I immediately said, yep, I want in. I, I want in. And they um, allowed me to join. Uh, sadly, a year later, um, Jarmaine took his own life. So I kind of have um, a bit more of an emotional attachment to revolving doors um, than I would under normal circumstances. Thank you. I'm sorry to to hear that 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 that's happened in such a way. Um, but it was it was quite sad at the time. It's, it's still sad now. I'm sorry, so upsetting at the time. Um, one good thing that came out of it was Jarmaine received a lot of dedications within some of the work we were doing. Um, the, the, I mentioned the probation work, but we also done some work with Russell Webster um, on something called Peer Volunteers. And basically it was a guide um, for organizations who accept volunteers, sorry, who accepts people with lived experience as volunteers. And it's basically a, a how-to guide, if you like, and how to get the best um, practices in. Um, and he received a dedication in that as well. But talking, I mean, whenever I um, do any work with revolving doors, I kind of feel like Jomaine's there with me. And I don't want to sound egotistical, but I kind of speak. No, I don't want to say I speak for him because I don't. But I, I, I get his, his his words in my head as well. Do you know what I mean? It's like something that he was felt very strongly about was the use of language. Uh, and that's something I advocate for as well, that, that the system uses the right sort of language. Like you mentioned in your, your introduction, in the email you sent to me, I thought, that paragraph was fantastic. And I thought, yes, I, I so can't wait to speak to these. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, yeah, as I say, it just gives me that more, that little bit more of emotional attachment. Um, and, I can't think of the right words to say about it, really. But he's there on my shoulder every time I'm doing stuff through revolving doors. It's the best way to say it, I suppose. Thank you. So moving on to the the work of revolving doors, and obviously your your background's really relevant to this. I wondered if you could share a bit about what it's like waiting to get out of prison and know that you have nowhere to go. Um. Phew. Something I say say regularly is that sometimes it's not the prison sentence itself that's difficult. It's getting out that's different. It, it, it's that difficult. It's that transition from prison to society that can be really difficult. Um, and in the past, I have come out of prison with, if you like, nowhere to go, um, no support, nothing around me. And it is difficult. It, it's extremely difficult. Um, especially if you, if you like in prison, you've, you, your intentions, you've got good intentions, you're going to turn your life around. You do all the work that you need to do in prison to, um, change your life. 
and then you come out of prison and, and you're just dropped and um it, it's it it does make that prison release less of an event than it should be i mean being released from prison should be an incredible event um but when you've got nothing and nowhere to go you don't want to get out it's it's as simple as that you don't want to get out it doesn't set people up very well does it for how how the rest of their their freedoms going no to it doesn't and of course um there's also um the issue of people taking their own life after shortly after coming out of prison as well and and that is because of that that stress if you like of of um starting again i suppose and if, if you're doing it with no support if you're doing it with no one around you i mean it's difficult as it is anyway because of the stigma and discrimination that comes from society to prison leavers um but to to yeah to do it with nothing it's it's so difficult so so difficult yeah it sounds a really overwhelming and you know lonely and overwhelming position to be in really um at that point especially if you've been in for a long time and uh, you know society changes yeah it can be and yeah well yeah <laughs> basically what what other challenges do people um getting out of prison face after a long sentence well like you mentioned the society changes when, when you're in you you kind of think that society stays on the hold while you're away and then you come out and you just see all these changes um i mean for me social media wasn't really a thing um and then come out and, and it's everywhere sort of thing and i had to get used to using social media and things like that um i mean i i although i've spent a lot of time in prison over a long period of time i think my, my, the longest i spent in prison was two years behind the door if you like on one sentence so um mine is all built up but um how someone would feel after 10 15 20 years i cannot i i cannot imagine i mean i i know how difficult it is to get out of prison and and sort of sort yourself out after as i say two years 18 months whatever those sentences were um so how someone does it after 10 15 years i i, I just don't know i really don't know mental toughness they and resilience it's got to be yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really hard to um, comprehend what it, you know, just thinking about how much society's changed with technology, for instance, if you went to prison sort of 15 or 20 years ago, how, you know, society is a very different place. But Smartphones. Yes, exactly. Uh, funny but, enough, what my own experience, what had changed uh, on this one was the way that the DWP worked. Um, and uh, before a case of, you go in, you sit down with someone, you speak to them and all of that. And I'd gone to the office and they give me a bit of paper and said, oh, you've got to fill that out. And I, well, no, I need to sit down and, and, and th this is how I've done it. And it was security. And um, within a minute, there were six security guards around me and I'm being labelled as potentially violent because I'm arguing with these because I didn't understand it. I just didn't understand it. Fortunately... I walked away from that situation, but that could have gone completely the opposite direction and I'd have found myself back in prison again.
Well, anxiety doesn't bring out the best in many of us, does it? You know, the more stressed people are, people do become, you know, anyone can become irritable and and what have you when they when they feel stressed. But I was, I suppose, I, was, I had a, a little chuckle when um, you said about social media because actually you're somebody who's really found your voice on social media I think you post a lot and yeah on LinkedIn you post a lot and really kind of like thought-provoking posts so certainly it seems like something that you have really found your way with um well I, I had a bit of a if you like a training ground with Facebook I, um when I first come out of prison um I I knew that I wanted to do this type of work but um I had to go through um proof premises first um my, my index offense was violence it was a robbery um so i was a mapper uh, and so i had to go through approved premises which is probation bell hostel for want of another name um and i then come out of the eight and went into supported accommodation so i was sort of not trapped but i was in this 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 kind of chasm if you like of going nowhere but and so I've got an interest in organized crime that stems back from many years ago. So I joined Facebook and I started to join organized crimes groups and started to use, if you like, my my um, knowledge about organized crime, the mafia, that sort of thing, American mafia, Sicilian mafia, um, and, and built up how to kind of utilize social media to get a message across, if you like. Um, in organized crime. Um, and then I started to use Twitter or X as it's now known, which I found to be extremely poisonous. Um, so I gave both of those up. I tried LinkedIn a couple of times before I got kicked off because I wasn't using it the right way. Um, and it was third time lucky. And, and since then, um, I think that was just before lockdown that I started using LinkedIn. And apart from Instagram, which is, if you like, my playground, um, it's the only site I now use. And I, I've, I've been extremely surprised and shocked at how I've been received on such a professional platform. I was really unsure how, as to how it was going to go. I thought, I'm going to get attacked left, right and centre. What are you doing on here? This is a professional site. But it hasn't been like that at all. And... Um, yeah, it's just incredible apps. I mean, to be honest, for again, for want of another phrase, I, I'm actually, I'm nobody. I'm not anybody. I'm, I'm someone like David mentioned, stuck in the revolving doors of crisis and crime for almost four decades. And there I am trying to voice my opinions and messages on this massive professional platform. And I've, I've been received so well. It's just, it's incredible. I, I still find it amazing today. And as I say, it's three years that I've been doing it on there now. Thank you, David. Um, you've given us some uh, extraordinary insights already. Thanks very much for that. But um, you know how sometimes when you're saying something aloud, it takes on a different meaning or a different power of meaning. So I found that when reading out the brief introduction at the beginning and 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 these phrases four decades that's 40 years um and your ninth custodial sentence and it made quite an impact on me because i couldn't help thinking that must be extraordinarily disruptive uh, to you and to your life and your relationships is 
Is that how you found it? Now, how have you now kind of settled into this smooth path that you found? Yeah, it's it has been. If you like, I spent most of my life surviving, surviving life. Um, couldn't hold down a job. Not very great at relationships and holding down relationships. Committing crime. Why would someone want to be with someone at committing crime? Um, I had a, an early marriage that that broke down early as well uh, in my twenties. Uh, my mum died in the twenties as well. So all of those sort of things really did have an impact on me kind of over the years, but I've never really had much of a um, high self-esteem of myself, self-worth. I didn't think of myself. I always called myself scum and I accepted it as well. Um, So one of the things that I did do was change the way that I spoke to myself because I think how you speak to yourself is more important than how you speak to other people. And during my, my stints in prison, Um, as I got older and more mature, um, I started getting involved in a lot more, if you like, citizenship work, some mentoring. I began in 2005, March 2005, with um, Shannon Trust, who are a charity who teach people in prison who can read, uh, sorry, train people in prison who can read to teach people in prison who can't. And that really did start to open my eyes to the people around me because I thought, yeah, I suppose it was. Right. I thought I was quite unique, not not unique as in great, but unique as in my own perspective, that the the life I was leading was kind of abused at a young age, excluded from school, all of that sort of stuff. And then I started to realise how common it was amongst my peers. Um, off the back of becoming a, a mentor for Shannon Trust, I then become a listener for the Samaritans. So that's kind of the same sort of thing as the mentoring, but you're going to get involved in people's innermost demons, if you like. Um, And that, again, really did enhance what it was that I was already thinking. I started to learn more about myself through mentoring, through being a listener, than any offending behaviour course or therapy could ever do. Um, And I become a better person because of it. Um, In prison. Uh, not out here. It didn't. It didn't transition out. So I kind of had two characters. I had a, a, a character. I was David. In, I was a person in prison, and I was a different person out here. And then in 2010, uh, I was diagnosed with several disorders, personality disorders, along with being ADHD. And although I, at the time, it was like when I received those diagnoses, it wasn't a case of oh great this is why this is the reason like these are the excuses blah 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 I saw them as reasons and although at that time I I suppose I wasn't ready to take in everything that I'd been told um over the time it, it slowly began to sink in having said that uh decisions I'd taken uh choices I made I found myself in 2015 with nothing I was I was disengaged from my own children, my grandchildren, my family, my friends. I was on the streets, homeless, uh, heroin, crack, amphetamine, cannabis, alcohol. I was in a bad, bad way. And um, I, I, I made a choice. Did I want to carry on living like that? Um, or do I want a different life? 
to be honest, at first it was, well, do I want to live or die? And I chose to live, obviously. Um, but I didn't want to live like that anymore. And I knew the only place that I could go to to sort myself out was prison. And um, I committed a crime that I knew would obviously get me sent back to prison um, to get caught. Uh, I committed the crime, got caught, uh, got three years, nine months. And I wanted to use that time to, to turn my life around. Um, to kind of take all of my experience, all of my knowledge, everything I knew about me, everything I knew who I could be in prison as well, to try and transfer that person out here. Um, at first I was all right. I had great intentions, but then I messed up. I got involved in Spice in prison and um, I was six, seven months into my sentence and it all come crumbling down. Um Fortunately, I was in Norwich Prison at the time. There's three parts to Norwich Prison. There's a DCAT part, which is HMP Bland, uh, Britannia House. You've got the um, CCAT part, which is the old YOI, known as FNG Wing. And then you had the main prison, which was the local BCAT. And I was on FNG at the time. And the day that I got nicked, if you like, um, was the same day I received my DCAT. So I went from an enhanced DCAT prisoner um to going back to BCAT conditions on basic for five weeks um and for the first couple of days I, I had the um I spat my dummy out I, that was it I've had enough I'm not that's it this is my life and now sort of thing and then an officer from um safer custody come and spoke to me for about an hour in my cell and um we just talked things through and the prison gave me another chance. Um, I stayed in the BCAT part, um, finished my five weeks basic. Um, and then shortly afterwards, I got put on to M wing, which was it's not an enhanced wing, but it was a slightly laid back, more calm, relaxed wing. Uh, it's only 40 people. It's basically two port cabins on top of each other. And um, there was only 20 on each landing, so there was a maximum of 40 people on there. And it was people on there that wanted to do their prison sentence the right way. Um, so I had a lot of people around me that um, were egging me on and motivating me and influencing me, and I was influencing them and motivating them. We bounced off of each other. And um, I was released on the 9th of June 2017, um, I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. I knew that I wanted, because I'd used my lived experience in prison. Uh, I, I knew how it made me feel in helping others. Um, and as I say, I had to go through three months of an approved premise. Then I got caught up in or trapped in supported accommodation because I couldn't move on. Um, it was the, the council wouldn't house me. Uh, then I tried to go private with count. I, I can't remember the name of the scheme that, but they helped pay uh, the deposit to the land. Or I can't remember the name of the scheme. So I sorted all that out and then started looking at properties, but no one would touch me because I had a criminal record. And um, fortunately, eventually um, I met someone um, who, coincidentally lived in my I was still in Norwich at the time and she lived in my 
old home county of Kent. Um, we got talking and um, ended up moving in together. Um, and that's been the case ever since. And so, but the biggest thing um, coming out of prison was having support. Uh, There's an organization called Future Projects up in Norwich. They'd come in uh, to do a, a, what's known as a radio resettlement show. And um, for people that are going to be released in the next six weeks in the Norwich area, I thought, oh, I like a bit of that. That sounds good. Because I, I knew that I needed something the other side of the gate just to give me that support, to give me that platform that I could build from. Because as I mentioned earlier, coming out of prison could be a lot more difficult than the actual prison sentence itself. And I knew I needed help. I'm not, uh, um, I wasn't mentally strong at that point. Um, and I knew that there could be some areas that you have to do, like probation and uh, the DWP and all those sort of things that could be high-risk situations for me where I'd make a mistake and I'd just fall apart and whatever. So they really did help me with those type of things. Um, and, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I've I, I done a piece in their local paper up there, up in Norwich, the Evening Post, um, about future because they really did give me the platform so that I could have a future. Um, and since then, it's just been a case of just building and building and building and building. But I had that platform to build from. When you come out of prison, you have a negative. Like I said, if there's nothing or no one, you've got no chance. I mean, I take my hat off to anyone that comes out of prison that doesn't have support, doesn't have a support network around them that can change their life around outside of prison. Big respect to them. I couldn't do that. I knew I couldn't do that. I got the support around me and that and, and the support accommodation I was in, the support there was great as well. So I had kind of a double barreled uh, um, form of support um, and slowly pulled away from them. And now uh, my partner, uh, uh, my, my children, my grandchildren, my close family, that that's, that's my kind of support network now, along with, um, the guys and girls at Revolving Doors. Thank you for that very uh, powerful uh, description uh, there, David. It, it's, uh, it's made me think of a lot of things. I mean, I'm very familiar, as I'm sure Naomi is, of many people who have followed a similar kind of path in prison, uh, embarking upon these citizen projects, as you described it. So people who become very skillful in prison, have opportunity to use their uh, relationships with others and their intelligence. But the big breach comes when they're uh, leaving prison. And that seems to be the area of great challenge. I mean, we're speaking to someone, must be over a year ago now, who funnily enough was also called David, who was describing a similar pattern uh, to you, David, of being in and out. And then he made a decision, like you did. And the way that he managed it was that he joined in everything. He joined in anything that was going that he could do. I was I was known as David in his um, many coloured T-shirts because obviously whatever roles you cover in prison, you get the T-shirt. So with the listeners, it was green. Um, with Shannon Trust, it was red. Um I can't think of them all now. With Prisoner Rep, it was purple. Um, 
I was far national rep. I, yeah, I, I, I threw myself into it, but you do. In prison, if, you, if someone's a mentor, you'll find they're not just a mentor for one thing. They're a mentor for four or five different things. And I was education on my last sentence. Well, I've, I've been education mentor a couple of times in jail. Um, but this last one, I, I spent 16 months, I think it was, in ed, as education mentor. Uh, and that was some of the most uh, just incredible times being a mentor. And seeing people, I mean, seeing people not being able to read, then go on to kind of start studying for an access module before doing a degree. Uh, and that might sound dramatic, but that happens. Because what I found with Shannon Trust as a Shannon Trust mentor was it wasn't so much that people couldn't or struggle to read. It was they didn't have the confidence because of the way that they've been treated over the years and the way they felt about themselves. And once you break through that, off they go. And, and, and learning, it becomes addictive. It really does become addictive. Succeeding, achieving, it, it's in prison, it becomes addictive because it's... It's a positive that doesn't exist, if you like, in prison. So once you start achieving, it's just like, I want more, I want more, I want more. And, um, yeah, that's that's what I did. Excellent. So moving on, um, you mentioned uh, Reconnect earlier yep. on. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I certainly can indeed. Um, Reconnect is a initiative from NHS Health and Justice. It's based on um, Lord Keith Bradley's report. Ironically, it's called, sorry, coincidentally, it's called the, the Bradley Report in 2009. And um, on the back of the Bradley Report, what was created was something known as liaison diversion. Um, and liaison diversions, basically, they, they work in police stations, they work in courts. And at the beginning, it was all about mental health. It was about ensuring that people were receiving the right mental health services, the sorry, the, the right mental health support. And if not, they would liaise with them and, and um, introduce these other support agencies to them and hopefully divert people away from the criminal justice system at the first instance. Um, but obviously, it doesn't work for everybody. And then you, you've got people in prison that have disengaged from um, from from health services for whatever reason, they might not have even engaged at all. Um, so on the back of that reconnect, sorry, on the back of liaison diversion reconnect was created, um, and since two thousand and nineteen, the the NHS Health and Justice come to uh, revolving doors and said, "Look, we've got this idea. What do you think?" And from day one. Um, revolving doors have been working with NHS Health and Justice on developing the Reconnect program. Um, it's live, it went live in 2019. Uh, as I say, we've been working with them from day one on developing and continual development of Reconnect. Um, it's now I believe 84% coverage of England, obviously NHS England, so they only cover England. Uh, and hoping to have 100% coverage by spring next year. And all it really is, for want of a better phrase, I like using them words, um, is a hand-holding service. It's, again, it's about being met, people coming out of prison and having nothing. It's, it's um, you get met in prison, someone speaks to you, so that relationship is built before someone comes out of prison, because there's nothing worse than 
being met at the gate by someone you don't know. Um, so it's always good to build up that relationship before release. And it's just someone that's there with you to support you into whatever it is that you requested. I mean, it can be something as simple as signing up for a GP, GP registration. Uh, it can be that, or it could be mental health um, issues that someone has. So it's just, as I say, it's that hand-holding service to support people into going into the services that they need to address their needs. And a lot of the, um, well, the, the support workers appears, they're people with lived experience. And one thing that we found um, is that people who have gone through a reconnect program, come out successfully on the other side, are coming back in to reconnect as peer workers. Um, and it's it's just, an, I love it. I absolutely adore I mean, I spent two and a half years myself um, representing the lived experience team at the board level of NHS Health and Justice. Um, that's now other people now uh, uh, cover that role. But I'm on something now called Enhance Reconnect, which is reconnect, but enhanced. <laughs> um, but it's for more sort of, if you like, I hate this word complex, but I can't think of a better word, but it's for, for more complex needs for people that are higher risk. So you're looking at the National Security Directive. So um, people that have been convicted of terrorist events, uh, 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 incidents, sorry. And then underneath those, you've got people with extremist links and then underneath those you've got serious violence and sexual offences and things like that um, because at the end of the day everyone has a right to have their health needs met um, regardless of what someone's in prison for we're humans and what the, the, there's no um, um, coincidence that the word humanity has human in it um, so yeah, um, but re I, I just I, I love reconnect. I really do. I mean, I, I just I've seen how successful it can be. Um, we've done this year. We've done a couple of site visits. I've done two face to face uh, and four online. Uh, and it's just one thing that I get to see is the passion uh, behind the people behind reconnect, the commitment. Um, it's just such a wonderful thing to see because at the end of the day, um, yes, people commit crime, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're criminals. It just means that they've got unmet needs, needs that need addressing, but haven't been for whatever reason. And a lot of that comes down to health. And if we can uh, um, support people into getting their health needs met, the chances are they won't be reoffending or hopefully with liaison diversion, offending. When you're talking about enhanced reconnect, David, I was struck by the amount of trust and confidence that people must have in your skills and ability to do that, um, to perform that role, actually. And I'm thinking, you know, quite often when people have spent a lot of time in prison, they haven't had that much experience of people having faith in their abilities. And I just wondered what that was like for you to to know that people have got that confidence in you? Um, well, it, well, in prison, we, we spoke about shunning trust, we spoke about listeners and other types of mentoring roles. I mean, I think there's something like 40 different uh, mentoring roles in prison. So in prison, you're used to working with people with lived experience um, because 
it, you, you don't need to explain things to someone with lived experience. Do you know what I mean? You just, they, they know it, they get it, they understand it. You, you can a look and you, you, you just get it. You, you just know what someone's thinking, not perhaps what they're thinking, but what they're going through, the kind of um, struggles they may be facing, those sort of things. Um, but for me, I mean, I'm going to sing the praises of the NHS Health and Justice here because they so value the opinion of people with lived experience. Um, and they are, um, what's the word? I'm not, they are sort of the head trumpeters um, and advocates for the people with lived experience. I mean, the way that they've made, I've mentioned Lord Keith Bradley. It's like, no, no, call me Keith. It's so down to earth. And the, the, all of the staff within the NHS Health and Justice, I mean, Kate Davis, she's the head of NHS Health and Injustice. I took part in, in an event, uh, co-chaired the event with Kate and with Keith Bradley, Lord Keith Bradley, last year. And Kate sent me some flowers. The only woman to ever send me flowers. And when people value like that, it just... Well, it adds to how you feel about yourself. It adds to that self-esteem. It adds to that mental toughness. It adds to that resilience that you've got people around you that actually value your lived experience. Lived experience that, I don't know, a lot of the public will look at and just turn their noses up. Do you know what I mean? Because of that stigma and discrimination that comes with having a criminal record. But... The NHS Health and Justice, for me, I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, the NHS, they're, they're an absolute godsend in this country. Um, and NHS Health and Justice are just an incredible, incredible set of people. They didn't pay me to say that either. They don't even know I'm on a podcast. so, <laughs> And they know who they are, so I don't need to name them. But, uh, well, Kate, Liz, Jake, Kate and Nikki, um, they're, the, they're the ones, but they, they're just awesome. Thank you. That's a, a good shout out for them. And from what you're saying, it's clear that you you very much believe in peer support. Um, and your other terms for that are things like lived experience, experts by experience, that kind of thing. You you obviously yeah, believe in that very strongly. I am, David, because I've, I've seen it for myself. Again, I mentioned Shannon Charles. This is all of that stuff that goes on in prison. That's all. I, I, I dread to think what the prison system would look like without that type of work going on. I mean, the listeners provide support to people 24-7. Um, Shannon Trust help people to read. And, and for me, reading is, is uh, it's very difficult for me to understand because I can read. And, uh, but what I do know is how difficult prison can be if you can't. You can't fill out a menu, so you have to rely on someone. You can't do your canteen, you have to rely on someone. You can't read your own letters, you have to rely on someone. And some of those letters are quite personal. And some of those letters as well were legal. So you're going to have people looking into kind of your legal stuff as well. Um, being able to read signs, all things like that. I mean, the difference that being able to read in prison and the independence that that gives you is massive. And that's off the back of other people, peers, your, your, your neighbour in prison. It's things like that. Listeners are saving people's lives. As, as we're sitting here now, 
there could be a listener call going on in prison where someone's life's just been saved because they've been able to ask to speak to somebody, someone with lived experience that they know are not going to judge them. They know that's in the same boat as them and they save their life just by talking. Hmm. Thank you. So shifting the direction of the gaze slightly, because a lot of people in prison are very mistrustful of people in authority, aren't they? Can you say something about why that is and how? It... Yeah, I can. Yeah, because you've been let down so many times, David. That's the thing as well. I mean, if you think that um, a lot of people in prison have had very disruptive childhoods where adults around them who are there to support, love and help them have let them down. And if you're being let down by those around you, you love that should be there for you and let you down when it's a stranger sort of that's in that position, then you're not going to trust a stranger because you've been let down by all these adults before. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's what really it comes down to is that, that being let down so many times before by these people that are supposed to be there to protect you. What changed it for you personally? Change what, David? You change your, your attitude towards authority. <sighs> Do you know what? In, in prison, I never really had an issue. As I say, I always got on well in prison. I didn't have an issue. All right, back in the early days, detention centre and youth custody, that was hard. Uh, and, and some of the staff were were bullies. There's no other word for it. They went out of their way to cause trouble. Um, but obviously, within the adult male estate, yet yeah, there's still some of those officers about, very, very much in the minority. Um, but I never really had an issue with prison officers. It was the, the, they were my that was prison become my home it become my comfort zone so it was out here where i did have issues with trust i'm not saying that um I, i've got past those issues i mean um having said that i i i respect i suppose I, do you know what <laughs> at the end of the day i grew up and stopped thinking the world owed me a favor that 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 really is what the case is and that um and um everyone's got a story to tell um everyone's got a, a job they have to do so it's not so much the the person it, it's the 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 title if you like that was mistrusting it was the job that was mistrusting it wasn't the individual themselves and i've learned uh over the years i mean i i hated i don't mind saying it, i hated the police absolutely hated them um, and tomorrow I'm going to be on a podcast with, uh, with two police officers, um, who invited me on, uh, because again, yeah, see, the thing is you've got all of this, this, um, mist in front of your eyes when you survive in life. And once you remove that list, that mist, you start to view life differently as well. And when you start thinking better about yourself, you start thinking better about other people. It's very difficult to think good of someone when you're not good yourself, if you like, for want of a better phrase. So, so when you're working alongside someone, uh, David, how do, how do you go about helping them see their way through that, that, that mist and overcome their resentment? 
listen, listen, that's what it is. As a mentor, it's not about showing people what you did. It's about showing them what they can do. And you do that through talking, asking questions, the right questions. Um, it's like if, if schools started asking the question, what's happened to you rather than what's wrong with you, we might find that there'd be less people in the criminal justice system. Um, and, and that's all it is. There's no, there's no um, uh, uh, um, secret behind it. It's lending someone a shoulder, believing in someone, listening to someone. That's what it comes down to. And that's what I found for myself. Um, on my last sentence, my uh, Deb's her name is, curriculum manager, who I was education mentor for, she had so much belief in me that I could only begin believing in myself. She really did unlock a talent in me that I didn't know I had. Um, and you, you just, again, it's like being able to read. Once you begin, off you go. Once you remove that, off you go. And you just speak to people in the right way. You, you, you ask the right questions. You don't tell them what to do. Um, you don't tell them how their life is. You ask them how their life is. You ask them, what is it you enjoy doing? What do you, what do you get most pleasure out of? And one of the things that I used to do with, with Shannon Trust, um, I used to ask people, what's your, what's your favorite thing? What, what do you enjoy doing most? An example is one guy I was helping him with his maths as well. And I said to him, what's your favorite sport? What sport do you? And he loved golf. And I said, golf is all about maths. He said, no, it's not. No, it's not. I said, it is. And, and we started building up his maths, uh, the, his strengths in maths based on golf because he was interested in golf. So therefore, it's a lot easier to embed the math into something he's interested in rather than just ram math down his throat. Thank you. Great. Great description. So moving on, you referred a, a couple of times to approved premises, David, or probational hostels. What's it like living in one? People often sound quite frightened about moving there when they're in prison. Well, I was very anti. Uh, I'd been to APs before and recalled every time because I couldn't handle them. Um, APs, approved premises, they're mixed residents so you've got um uh um uh you've got uh people that were convicted of sort of sex offensive crimes in there uh against anybody so women children whatever and you've also got uh people like i so for violent crimes um and mixing in this small area whereas in prison we're separated um, and you're not allowed to judge, if you like. You're not allowed to kind of argue. So it's a very, very difficult situation to be in. There's a lot of restrictions placed on you as well. Um, it's quite ironic, really, because on your on, on your on your license, it does or not on everyone's license, but it states that you're not allowed to hang around with criminal friends. And yet you're in a hostel full of people that have been in prison. Do you know what I mean? It's strange. And you're kind of stuck in there as well. You have to eat in there. You sleep in there. You wash in there. Everything goes on in there. So if you don't go into an AP in the right frame of mind, if you look at it as it is, the chances are you fell. You've got to think of yourself. You've got to put yourself first. You've got to be selfish. Uh, and that's what I learned. I was 
going against them every single time. The same with probation. I was against them all the time, working against them, campaigning, not complaining. Um, if they said it was blue, I'd say it was grey. Do you know what I mean? Really was an anti-probation, anti-AP person. And this time around, it was like, look, if I want to get my life sorted out, I've got to do it. I have to do it. There's no if, buts, or maybes about it. I have to have the right attitude in this AP, otherwise I'm going to get recalled. Um, and obviously I didn't get recalled, so I did have the right attitude, but they are extremely, extremely difficult. It's like, um, again, from my experience, my own personal experience, in prison I was on medication that I could have in possession. It's known as in possession in prison. Yet when I got to the hostel after two years of prison, I'm being told that I have to hand my medication in and start going into insight. Insight means that you have to take your medication in front of them. Uh, and that, for me, it's just more control, more control, more control. It's like I had my control in prison, but I've come out and now I've got to hand my control over to you. It's Being in an AP, for me, is, is just as hard, if not harder, than being in prison. Um, harder than being in uh, an open prison for me. Um, and and that was where I struggled and, and why I kind of kept getting recalled back to prison because I couldn't handle life in an AP. I couldn't handle... Because you, you're out, you're free, but you're not. It's a really bizarre sense of freedom that you have. Um, yeah, so it's it's... It's a completely different mindset. For my, in my opinion, it's a completely different mindset that you have to take in there than any other thing to do in a criminal well, justice system. What does the system do to make these environments feel more supportive, give people a better place to land when they leave prison? Is there, any, is there anything you can think of? Yeah, I mean, I understand why we have the need for APs, and especially for people that are convicted of sex offences. We don't want people like that going underground and being lost, um, especially if they're high risk. Um, but, yeah, for me, it, it, it's, for a start, I believe that we should be separated like we are in prison because that, as I say, that... It's very different. You can imagine, I don't know if you can, but someone that has a history of being abused and you're now sitting there eating your dinner with people that abuse children. It's it's extremely difficult when you're trying to turn your life around. You've got all this extra pressure on you to behave. Um, and, and in prison, sorry to say, but if you're on general population and you know someone is a sex offender or something like that, it's a kind of duty that you have to do something violent towards them in prison. It's Otherwise, you'll just get tired with the same brush. Why didn't you do anything then? What you in, Do you know what I mean? That was the sort of atmosphere that you have to kind of deal with. So when you come out of prison and you get put in an AP and we're not separated, it's, it's, quite, it's really difficult. So for me, we need to have separate ones. And again, I understand why they're there. Um, because they're there to make sure that you kind of reintegrate back into society in the right way. And people do need to be reintegrated back. In. If you've done 20 years in prison, come out and get put on your own in a flat, you're going to fail. Uh, not everyone, perhaps, but the chances are you're going to fail. So I, I, I totally understand why they're there. The principle 
is spot on. It's the practices that they need to change. And also they need to give people, I mean, that this, this kind of probation becoming um, so risk averse that um, you can't breathe. You can't, probation needs to take a little bit of a step back if you like, um, but they won't. They won't because they're too scared of anything happening. And I understand that because it does happen. Um, you get people, um, uh, I can't remember the one, uh, the recent lady who was uh, raped and killed uh, by someone that had been out of prison for a week and he hadn't logged, on, logged in with probation, all that sort of stuff. Something like that happens. They then become the face of everything. Um, so everything then clamps down, everything shuts down under more conditions, under more restrictions. So they tar everyone with the same brush. Stop tarring everyone with the same brush. If one person does it, it doesn't mean to say that another thousand going to do it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's treat people as individuals. Don't treat them as a high-risk prisoner. Treat me, if you like, as David Breakspear, not as everything else that comes with it. Um, but no, I haven't got all the answers for it, no. <laughs> but yeah, for me, it's the practices. It's an that interesting need to change. point that you make about the, you know, that tender because we do see that, don't we? That if um, if something goes wrong, then all of a sudden the restrictions are applied in a uniform way, and, and we don't notice all the times that exactly. it goes Look right. Well, Daniel Khalif, he escaped when he escaped, sorry, allegedly escaped. I don't know how it's allegedly, but there you go. Um, 40 people were moved out of Wandsworth. Um, people's rottles were being cancelled. People decat, they were getting sent back from decat. People's com compassionate leave was being cancelled. Everything gets cancelled when one person messes up. But just to pick up, pick up on that point about having... Uh, a mixed population of people who've been convicted of sexual offences living alongside people who haven't. I mean, I did lead a service where we did have people working together uh, with mixed backgrounds, but I think, you know, that was perhaps the place to be able to work on that. And actually, once people are outside, maybe that becomes more challenging um, if people haven't already addressed those kind of difficulties, uh, you know, the cultural difficulties. I was invited up to um, HMP Doncaster last year and um, I was in one of the, I won't name too many areas, but I was in one of their work areas where all 43 prisoners, which is vulnerable prisoners, VPs, and uh, people in prison from the same, uh, sorry, from the general population work together. And... Um, I was in this area and I really did not know any different. I didn't know who was in for what. You couldn't tell who was in for what. There was no one pulling me one side saying, oh, you need to be careful of that person. You need to be careful of that person. So it can work, but you're right, um, Naomi. It needs to begin in there under slightly more, I can't think of the right words for years, though, under more sort of regimented control, I suppose, is the best way to describe that. But when you come out, it's a completely different feeling. It's a completely different mindset that you have. It's like, no, it's, we're separating. So if someone's used to that sort of situation in prison, they come out to live in an AP, they're going to find it a hell of a lot easier than someone that hasn't gone through that in prison. So 
David, one of the things that you've kind of touched on was, I think you mentioned um, detention centres and which made me, and you've also spoken, spoke quite passionately about maybe if we asked young people what's what's happened rather than what's wrong with them. Do we criminalise our young people too soon? I mean, we have the lowest age of criminal responsibility in Europe, don't we? Yeah, 10 um and yes we do we do criminalize children too young um i mean for me the biggest the biggest area that we should focus on is the school to prison pipeline uh, and school exclusions obviously that's not to say that school exclusions primarily lead people in the criminal justice system but it's the behavior behind those school exclusions that do because that behavior gets left undressed um it gets left unmet it, it's they, 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 children get punished rather than helped. I mean, being excluded from school, if you're a young child and you're excluded from school, you feel as if you're being excluded from society. Um, and not only that, by being excluded from school, I think it was 2019, National Crime Agency suggested that 100% of children caught up in county lines had been excluded from school and that school exclusion is a contributing factor to child criminal exploitation. Um, because if children are in school, they can't be exploited. Having said that, people now are being exploited in school um, to kind of get, if you like, soldiers involved in county lines. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, and when I was last in prison, 2017, just before I got out, the Institute of Public Policy, they estimated that at the time, I think there was 85,965 people in prison. 54,164 had been excluded from school. So it's a massive, massive problem. And once that, I mean, it's so much easier to support a child than it is to fix a broken man. It really is, because once you're in that criminal justice system, it's extremely, extremely difficult to get back out again. And everything becomes entrenched, like I was, stuck in that system for years. And you'll find that people that are excluded from school who end up in prison go to prison eight, nine, ten times and around the age of 40, 45, like I was, until they're able to grasp life, if you like, and be able to turn their life around. It's such an important area. I mean, th th there's so much research available out there as well about the school to prison pipeline. Up in, in, in 2013, the University of Edinburgh, um, they were looking into the issues of the uh, prisons of, in, in Scotland being overcrowded. And the director of the research turned around and said, the best way to deal with Scottish overcrowding is to stop the school to prison pipeline and school exclusions. It, it's such, <laughs> it's in that the evidence is screaming at us. Um, and I always, prevention is better than cure. It really is. If we can support children, now I'm not saying that everyone, every child should be in school because school isn't for everybody. But there are so many alternative provisions now and send schools and things like that. There's so much alternative provision available that children shouldn't be left to be failing. They shouldn't be left to walk the streets. They shouldn't be left to be exploited by county line gangs. 
Thank you, David. So you're also involved, well, you're involved with so many things. What is the Revolving Doors Neurodiversity Forum? Uh, well, the, the, basically, the Neurodiversity Forum is a, a group of six members with lived experience, sorry, six members of the lived experience team who have identified as being neurodivergent. And since October 2021, uh, along with other companies out there that were working with the Ministry of Justice, we've also been working with the Ministry of Justice on their neurodiversity in the criminal justice system program. And um, basically, again, it's, it's, it's about speaking truth to power. It's about speaking to policy makers and decision makers. It's about um, letting them listen to what, for me, what wasn't there. I mean, I, I can't help them into what was there because we didn't have anything around neurodiversity. Um, so it's about what was missing in my life, those sort of things. And some of the stuff that's gone on, I mean, on the back of the neurodiversity in the criminal justice system report, you've now got neurodiversity support managers in prisons. And on the back of neurodiversity support managers in prisons, they've now got people in prison becoming neurodiversity champions. So you've got, again, it's like Shannon Trust, listeners, um, St. Giles, peer advisors, that sort of thing. It's people with lived experience in prison banging the drum now for people with neurodiversity. And we're starting to see changes. I mean, you've got HMP Park, uh, which has a neurodiversity wing. You've got Pentonville now, which has a neurodiversity landing. It, it needs to be expanded and expanded so it's a national thing, not just a local thing. That's one of the biggest issues in the criminal justice system for me. Things happen in silos. Um, if something's good going on in Cornwall, it should be just as good going on up in Newcastle. Yes, there are uh, 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 differences between the two counties, and those should be brought into it, but that's down to those individual counties to bring into it. There's no reason why we can't have a national policy, though. Thank you. So we're getting towards the uh, the end of our conversation, David. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, there, you said so many interesting things, but what struck me was that we've mentioned that the age of criminal responsibility is ten, and you've mentioned several times about hitting a stage in life. I'm not quite sure whether you meant around 30 or around 40, uh, where you grew up. Um, and and I, I agree with that. I think we greatly underestimate the rate, no, we overestimate the rate at which we grow up. Yeah, I think it's, I think in, in the criminal justice system, in the male state, um, for people who are caught up in the criminal justice system, the age of maturity is 29. Uh, I can't remember where that research has come from. I, I, it may be the, the MOJ themselves that have stipulated that, but I know it's that the it could even be higher than that. But yeah, but then the reasons for that is because of everything that's gone on before, excluded from school, uh, care experience. I mean, there's so many different reasons why someone doesn't mature until later on in life. And I'm one of those people. You kind of learn from your own experiences. You start learning from your own lessons. Um, and again, it doesn't happen with everyone. Um, 
But I was quite fortunate that um, although I was kicked out of school, I still loved to learn. Um, I think it was Mark. Yeah, it was. I don't. It was Mark Twain who said, "I didn't let school interfere with my education," and I very much resonate with that. Um, in prison, learning, 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 education, 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 because that's what it's about. Prison. It's a learning and uh, uh, and an education environment. You, you're learning every, something every day, um, and the more that you can sort of absorb that and then start to use it in your own mind for yourself, then that's when you start to turn your life around. That's when you start to grow up. That's when you start to see things from a different lens uh, and you start to realise, hold on a minute, this life ain't much of a life really going in and out of prison. I think it's time I changed. But that's why we need to grab people early because once someone's caught up in that system, you don't. that doesn't happen until someone's 30, 35, 40. We need to make sure that they, it's, well, as a child, they don't end up in a criminal so, justice David, system. you've had a pretty difficult life, really, and you work now with people who have also been through very difficult and challenging times. How do you keep yourself well and uh, refreshed in life, really? <laughs> By doing it. Do you know, you, you, there's, there's no better feeling than, than giving back. Um, I took, I spent so long taking that once I began to give back, I started be feeling better about myself. Um, so again, it's, that's what it comes down to when it, when it's about self care, um, it's, it's what I do. That's where I get that, that motivation, that passion, that, that will to live if you like um by what i do having said that i do take time for myself i relax i i chill out um uh, i have other people that i can offload to debriefing is something that's extremely important um i'm recently um uh past training to become a lived experience influencer for the national suicide prevention alliance um so we debrief a lot after that. They also provide support as well. It's revolving doors, Samaritans, who I'm a member of their lived experience team, National Suicide Prevention Alliance. They do so well because of the support that they give to the people that volunteer for them. If it wasn't for that support, um, people wouldn't be able to do the jobs that it is that they do for them. Support, support, support. As you were talking, David, you, you made me think of how often it seems like people in prison have felt very much excluded from society and not part of and, and given the message that they don't belong, which starts perhaps with, you know, how they're treated in their families quite often, but also the, the exclusion from the school system. And as you were talking, you just had this real sense of how how included you are within society in very many ways you know and, and you've made sure that as part of that you also play a role contributing something that's really valuable to society but that belonging really comes through from from how you speak about what you do yeah you do i mean sexually abused um kicked out of class suspended excluded excluded from a pupil referral unit, then put into uh, care of the local authority, just excluded, 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 excluded. And then when you're in prison, 
in the eyes of most society, prison exists outside of society. When it doesn't, it's very much in society. And um, and I do feel very much part of society. Um, but one of the best bits of advice I ever received was don't apologise for having a voice and don't apologise for having lived experience. Uh, and and um, as much as I do feel included, I don't think anyone will now be able to kind of push me back out again by beating me up with the uh, stigma discrimination stuff. I, I don't feel as as much well no I don't really feel any stigma and discrimination these days I'm proud of, of having lived experience I'm not proud of the things I did and I apologize to any victims over my life that have been created but I'm proud of having lived experience and I'm proud of having a voice and I am so thankful to people like yourselves revolving doors the NHS whoever, for providing a platform for people with lived experience. Because something I do say is that, great, I've got the voice. Great, I've got lived experience. But if I didn't have a platform, I'd be speaking to a brick wall. So as much as people sometimes are oh, so grateful you come here, so thankful for you to use your lived experience, I'm just as grateful for the platform because it's these platforms where we can people will listen, and hopefully we can begin to change the way people think. For real change to happen, you first have to change the way people think. For coming on and sharing your story, David. Really ah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. And thank you, Naomi. Brilliant. Loved it.